Welcome to Chan's The Man Apologetics. I'm your host, Chan Heron, where I discuss doctrine, apologetics, behavior, the Christian worldview, and sometimes just tell stories. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening today. This is the second installment on the topic of worldviews, and we're going to deal with question number one, the question of origins. Where did I come from? This really is the question of the existence of God. Some say yes, there is a God. Some say no, there's not a God. Now, The question of God's existence is of the utmost importance. What you believe about where you came from affects your whole outlook on life. And it influences many of the answers of the other questions that we have mentioned in last week's podcast. So, is there a God? Now, I think there can be only two answers. The the, the answer to there's no in-between. It's either yes, there is a God, and no... There's not a God. There's no in-between. Now, we're not getting today into uh, theology, which is the study of God, um, which is, you know, what is God like? We're We're not dealing with that. What we're dealing with is there a God. Now, many people attempt to answer this in the affirmative. And those individuals are called theists. Now, I would say that I am a theist. I would argue that there is a God, and it's, I think there's a good bit of evidence for it. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. How do I know that God exists? Well, I don't, I can't prove that God exists, and so when, when someone asks me, can you prove that God exists, the first, the first question I ask them is, well, what do you mean by prove? I do not have a selfie of me and God. I do not have God's DNA where I can somehow examine it underneath the microscope. So I do not have, if that's what you mean by prove, or, or a scientific equation where it points to the theory of everything, where that theory of everything is just a fancy word for God. Um, Also, if by prove you mean show mathematically or scientifically where the conclusion is inescapable that it's necessarily true that God exists, I, I don't have any of that. No, I do not, if that's what you mean by prove. But I think we can show that it's more reasonable to believe in God than not. Now, a lot of times I'm asked, well, how sure are you that God exists. And I think there's, I don't think you can know 100% sure about everything. But what we do is we, we, make, we make judgments as to the truth value of a claim with different degrees of certainty. And there's some things I know with a greater degree of certainty and others that I know with a lesser degree of certainty. I mean, I still can know them, but maybe I'm not as sure about them. So I'm not 100% certain that God exists, but I think it's highly probable and likely. Now, for you theists out there that are hearing me saying this, please don't think that I, uh, when I have my prayer time, that I say uh, the Lord's Prayer is our Father who probably art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, 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 I don't do that. I know there's a, I know that there's, 
a God. I know that God exists. I just don't know it with 100% certainty. So what is it that makes God's existence more likely than not? Well, many arguments have been given as to the existence of God. And I won't go into them in detail, but you can look these up if you want to. The cosmological argument argues from a beginning to a beginner. And what, what it reasons is from effect to cause. So we have this universe here, and, and it go, tries to go backwards. And you can put it in the form of a deductive argument. It goes something like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And all you have to do is defend the first two premises, and the conclusion necessarily follows. And so through... Uh, premise one is, 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 is pretty self-evidently true. Everyday observation and scientific evidence confirms that anything that comes into being must have a cause. The second premise, the universe began to exist. Scientific investigation and scientific discoveries throughout the 20th century point to the universe having a beginning. We have the second law of thermodynamics, which shows that the universe is running out of usable energy, which, if it's always been here, then it would have run out by now. We have the, uh, the radiation afterglow, which shows the red shift and how Edwin Hubble looked through his telescope and saw that the galaxies seemed to be moving away from each other at a consistent rate. Now, how did he know that? Well, he knew that because of the red shift. Now, what's the red shift? Well, the red shift is, is, is this. Have you ever been driving and you hear a siren, either it's uh, an ambulance or a fire truck, and, and it gets closer and closer, and as it gets closer and closer, it gets louder and louder, and as it moves further away from you, it gets quieter and quieter. That's called the Doppler effect. And what is happening is that the wavelengths that is getting louder and louder the sound, the, the wavelengths are getting shorter and shorter, and so it has a higher frequency. As the wavelengths are moving, as the sound is moving away from you, the wavelengths are getting longer, and the frequency is getting quieter and quieter. And that works with sound. Well, the red shift is the same principle, but it's with light. And so as the wavelengths are longer, you see a red, there's a red shift to the red end of the spectrum. As the wavelengths are shorter, that means that the, there's a blue um, end of the spectrum. If the galaxies had been moving toward us, then Edwin Hubble would have noticed a blue shift, but he didn't. He noticed a red shift, which indicates that the wavelengths of light were getting longer and being stretched out, which indicates that the light uh, was moving away from us, or we were moving away from that light. And hence, there's an, that's the expansion of the universe, and that's what the red shift is. So that was evidence that the universe began to exist, because if we was to rewind all of that back in time, we would have all space, matter, and time sink down to a single point that we would call nothingness. And Einstein's theory of relativity showed that space, matter, and time came into existence at the Big Bang. Now, what I mean by the Big Bang, I don't mean evolution. I mean the beginning of the universe. That all that, that's all that means. 
And so when you look at the scientific evidence that points to the beginning of the universe, then it leads to the conclusion that the universe must have had a cause. That's the end of the argument. Now, this argument is religiously neutral. It doesn't try to prove the God of the Bible or any other God. It just needs to, it just shows that space, matter, and time came into existence at the beginning of the universe and therefore needs a cause. So since the conclusion of the cosmological argument is that the universe has a cause, the next step is to, we can infer what this cause might be. However, whatever caused space, time, and matter to come into being, then that cause must be spaceless and timeless and immaterial. And a lot of people think that that is what we call God. Now that seems reasonable, it really does. What seems unreasonable is to think that the universe and space, time, and matter could just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing. We don't see anything like that. But there are some people that hold to that. And it's not based on the evidence, it's based on the philosophical commitment to naturalism or atheism. But there's also another argument that points toward origins, and it is the design argument. The design argument was made famous by William Paley when he used this watchmaker analogy. And it's a good analogy. And what he said was he asked us to imagine walking in the woods and coming across this watch and, it, and you pick it up and you look at it and it's got these intricate parts it's got numbers it's got gears it's got uh, other little mechanisms and you would conclude that someone or something designed this watch because wind rain and erosion doesn't seem to be a agent that would cause something or design something like a watch and then he substitutes the universe in for the watch to make the it, it, this watchmaker analogy and so the argument goes something like this all design implies a designer there is design in the universe therefore there must be a designer of the universe now this seems self-evidently true because if you have a painting you got a painter if you have a book you have an author if you have a building you have a builder so it seems like if we have this universe that looks designed therefore it must be designed and then there's two other pieces of evidence for design in the universe one is the fine-tuning they have this fine-tuning where certain constants and quantities are so designed and so fine-tuned that to change the parameters of each one of those by a hair's breadth either way would, would alter life as we know it. And then you have the issue of information in the DNA. The DNA is like a computer code. It is amazing, and it's information. And what we've learned is that wherever you have information, there's always a mind behind it. I remember driving down the road in uh, my neighborhood and I saw, I passed a yard that had cups 
arranged in the fence to spell out the message, live, love, laugh. And it was pretty clear. That was a message. Those cups had to be arranged by someone because the chances of those cups being blown over during a picnic and, and fashioned in the fence to make the, that message, live, love, laugh, just seems highly unlikely. And our everyday observation and continual experience seems to show that wherever we have information, there's always a mind behind it. So a question to ask the atheist is where did the first information in the DNA come from, the, the, the information in the first life? Where did it come from? And this is a reasonable question. Dr. Stephen Meyer has written a great book called The Signature in the Cell that deals with the information in the DNA. Now, it's not an easy read. It's a tough read. So if you decide to check into that, put your boots on because you're going to get deep. But it's really, really good. And he talks about the improbability of the information in the DNA rising by natural causes. It just doesn't happen. And yet, there are some people that say... We just don't know how the uh, first life happened, but we know that it happened because we are here. And that's the problem of abiogenesis, which is life from non-life. I want to read a quote by Dr. Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, The God Delusion, and here's what he says. On page 165, talking about how life could possibly come from non-life, he says this. Just as we did with the Goldilocks orbit, we can make the point that however improbable the origin of life might be, we know it happened on Earth because we're here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you pay attention to this statement, this commits an elementary fallacy known as circular reasoning. When you ask, when you assume what you're trying to prove, then you go in a circle. And so he's assuming that abiogenesis, life from non-life, happened. And when you ask him how it happened, he said, I don't know, but we know that it somehow happened because we're here. Because if we weren't here, it wouldn't have happened. And we know that it happened because we're here. That's what he's saying. And that is so bad. How do we know that it happened if we have no idea, in principle, how it could have happened. Whereas we do know from everyday experience that whenever we see information, there's always a mind behind it. Information can only come from intelligence. Unfortunately, Dawkins is not the only one who argues in a circle and makes these incredulous claims about design and information and abiogenesis. Dr. Alex Rosenberg, who's a professor of philosophy at Duke University, wrote a book entitled The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. And he has a chapter in his book called How Physics Fakes Design. And here's what he says on page 93 of his book. Quote, Recognizing the fact of purposelessness in a world that is screaming design at us out of every niche and every organ is not easy. Even among people who accept scientism, the complete purposelessness of things is difficult to keep firmly in mind. 
That's because the teleological worldview is the second strongest illusion nature foists on us. We shall see that it does so as the side effect of an even deeper illusion, one that has itself a thoroughly Darwinian explanation. Exploring and exploding this last illusion is by far the biggest challenge scientism faces." End quote. Are you serious? He says, recognizing purposelessness in a world that's screaming design at you is not easy. Why is that? Why is it that they have to remind themselves, they being the, the people who hold to scientism, which is science is the only way that we can know things, you have to, you have to keep reminding yourself, this is not designed, this is not designed, this is not designed. What if the universe is screaming out design at us because it is designed? And the design of the universe would give us a clue as to the question of origins. So I hope that you see that the theistic worldview answers the question of origins better than the non-theistic worldview. It just makes sense that the evidence that we see in the universe shows that there must be a mind behind it, that the universe has not always been here. It had a beginning. And so next time we will look at the second question in the five questions every worldview attempts to answer, which is meaning.